the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. I have this friend. We talk, I don't know if you have friends like this. We talk almost, I don't know, two or three times a week. And if by chance it's been like three days or if we push it and it's been four or something like that, once in a while he'll say something like, it's been so long since we talked and so much has happened. We're going to need about five weeks just to handle the last 72 hours. And I feel that way about my guest, Brandon J. Weikert, except we're going to need about five months to cover the last two weeks. Welcome back, Brandon J. Weikert, author of Winning Space, How America Remains a Superpower, columnist, The Asia Times, columnist, American Greatness, and publisher, The Weikert Report, theweikertreport.com, free to anyone who accesses it. How are you, sir? Well, I'm okay. How are you? I'm fine. You probably know what I mean when I say it's going to take us yeah. the next five months to handle the last couple of weeks. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. got a fun game for you. I just fell 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 upon by accident. <laughs> I was um I was looking to um I was looking up on Amazon, uh, your book uh, Winning Space and yeah. uh, and and the reason is I I have two copies uh, but none right in front of me, and I, I there was uh, some language I was hoping to get. But Amazon does this thing, recommended authors for you. I've never looked yeah. at it before. I never have. I never have. <laughs> and they're pretty good. I got to say, yeah. they kind of nailed yeah, me. me? <laughs> yeah, 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 for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, they I, do pretty good. They do pretty good on that. That's but wouldn't it be a fun game to take someone you respect, so in this case, you, for me, yeah. and ask them who is the, who are the authors they get recommended i want to read what brandon reads who are the people you right. are recommending that might be fun someday for us to that would be. yeah that would be yeah. that's a great idea if we ever do something more maybe we can integrate it you know? yes yes absolutely i don't I know to where to begin twitter. i guess i try to post on twitter the, the the authors that i'm reading no you do a very good job you are always yeah, very gracious you you cite so, you cite your experts a lot and it's yeah, i try to no yeah. it's gracious you don't see that well, a lot that's that's no you don't as they say good <laughs> form good form right thank you thank all right you, you taught me a word today ah. taikonaut oh taikonaut yeah and, and it created a resentment for those that don't know, taikonauts are what are, are the Chinese version of astronauts or the, Rus the Russian version of cosmonauts. And right. the resentment I have is I always thought, though we kind of beat the Russians, originally at least, right. in space, I right. always thought cosmonauts was a cooler name. Yes. You yes. agree? <laughs> they yeah, got the yes. better name. I like astronaut, too. But, I, uh, well, yes. You have yes. to. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> in your world. Right. Talk right. to me about – I want to do a lot of Russia in a minute, but first okay. let's get Chinese taikonauts out yeah. of the yeah. way. China sure. to conquer moon in 2026 while America makes gender-neutral spacesuits <laughs> just in time for our 300th anniversary. <laughs> yeah, so um, – No, not quite. 250, right, right. but yeah. Anyway. 200, right, yeah. right, right, right. Um, so China, China is about um, – 
uh, to catch up to the United States in a big way. As you remember, we landed on the moon in the 1969, uh, and it was always assumed from that point on America won the space race, and, and the, the universe was off. Yeah. Uh, beginning in uh, about 10 years ago, though, China said, actually, we think the universe is going to be off. Uh, and so they began investing quite assiduously into uh, space technology, uh, so much so that they went from being about 30 years or 20 years behind us a decade ago, technologically, to now being neck and neck with us. And now to the point where they are building this new kerosene gas rocket that uh, will be able, by 2026, they believe, to get their personnel and equipment to the lunar surface. Uh, it, it is a uh, all-of-society effort, the way that Apollo was for us. Uh, and at, this, at the same time, that NASA has finally come out and admitted that they will not be able to complete the Trump administration uh, mandate of returning astronauts to the moon by 2024. So as soon as they're NASA looking into the that, next decade at this point, right? They're looking at 2030. Yeah, right. I suspect they never will get to it. Okay, uh, that's, okay. that's my belief. Okay. The, way the bureaucracy works. Uh, and the way they're going after Elon Musk, uh, regulating him with the SAA, I highly, I, I, I would not be surprised if another few years, suddenly he finds his ability to launch seriously hemmed in uh, by the Biden administration, which doesn't like Musk's politics anyway. Um, so China is going to take the moon. They have a plan, and they're partnering with Russia now to kind of, because Russia's very advanced in, in uh, space technology. So they're, they're partnering now with Russia in this endeavor to leapfrog whatever advantages SpaceX and the American private sector give the U.S. government in the space race. And I suspect, given the political will and the resources that both China and now Russia are making available to this endeavor, I suspect that indeed Beijing will beat the Americans to the moon. And unlike the American effort to get to the moon in the 1960s and 70s, the Chinese are not planning to just plant a flag and take some pretty pictures and go home. Oh, no. This is a proof of concept. This is a pilot program, if you'll pardon the expression, for a much longer-term uh, plan for having a base, a uh, permanent base, for their Taikonauts and Russian cosmonauts, a three-phase base. They want to have one in orbit. They want to have one in the lunar uh, south pole. And then they want to have a series of bases underground mining the moon for what's known as rare earth minerals, which are the essential elements for building high technology on Earth. Uh, they're very hard to get to on Earth. We get to them through deep mining, uh, but they're very they cause a lot of pollution, and they're in sort of these tricky areas in Africa. You have a lot of child labor being used for it. So many people believe that if we could pioneer rare earth mineral mining in space where it's in abundance, you won't have the pollution, you won't have the human rights abuses, uh, and, and you'll get a product in abundance that will lower the cost of those minerals, which means all the products we build with those minerals will be lowered. And China has a plan to be the monopoly of that rare earth mineral output. They already are starting to monopolize it on Earth, and now they're looking at the moon saying, hey, there's a reason for us to go and stay. And by the way, once we're on the moon and we're mining on the moon and funding our operations with that money, we're then going to pivot and go from the moon to Mars and the asteroid belt. Meanwhile, the Americans are building gender-friendly spacesuits because, of course, that's the priority in Washington, making sure that everybody gets to go, gender regardless. I was thinking about that uh, when I was reading your call, your uh, essay on this column or essay over at American Greatness 2020, yeah. 
China to conquer moon in 2026 while America makes gender-neutral spacesuits. And I was thinking about a lot of the things our military is engaged in. I was reading a report, must have been about two months ago, having to deal with transgender in the military. And I was just I, – I wasn't alone, so I don't want any credit here. But, you know, you step back and think, is this what China's dealing with? And the answer is no. The answer no. is no. They are focused on what their job and mission is because I suppose they actually believe in their country. Right. Right. And as, as you know, in my book, I have a whole section on space nationalism, yeah. in which I talk about yeah. how – the, the Chinese, when you the uh, poll was done, I think it was Ipsos, they did it on the, the uh, uh, anniversary, the 50th anniversary or 60th anniversary of Apollo moon landing. They asked students in the U.S., U.K., and China, what do they want to be when they grow up? The U.S. and, K, the US and U.K. students overwhelmingly said they want to be YouTubers or yep. social media influencers, yep. whereas the Chinese overwhelmingly, almost the same percentage of Chinese said, no, we want to be astronauts. Yeah, what uh, kids Chinese, used to say here. Kids used right. to say that here. Yeah, right. We stole it from them. We robbed believe. them of that. Yeah, right. The Chinese believe in their culture. They've been inculcated for three generations. They've not been inculcated really in communism. They've been inculcated in Chinese nationalism and neo-Confucianism, which goes back much longer than communism does. Communism has been adapted to that sort of older Confucian ethos, especially after Mao died. And so now Xi's trying to bring back some of that Maoism for his own purposes. So that could actually hurt China uh, in the medium term if they embrace Xi Jinping's thought. But even then, Xi Jinping's thought is not anywhere near as noxious as Maoist thought was. Uh, the, 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 the overriding thinking is Confucianism and an appeal to restoration of previous national greatness. And space, therefore, according to even Xi Jinping himself, space is an essential element of that restoration of national greatness, and it's essential for the Chinese people to be able to wage their people's war successfully against their former colonial oppressors in the West and to knock the Americans down from their dominant position on Earth, which is how space, which is how they're viewing it in, in China. Brandon, um, man, that was a good uh, overview. You speak like you write, very clearly, very succinctly oh, and very artfully. Let me take a quick commercial break. We'll pick up on that, and then I want to do all the things Russia is doing with you as well. Yeah, yeah right, exactly. I'm, he's not going anywhere, and he's happy to take your questions too. Brandon J. Weicker, 602 We'll be right back. The author... Brandon J. Weikert is with us. His book, Winning Space, How America Remains a Superpower, also a columnist for the Asia Times, American Greatness, and the publisher of The Weikert Report. He spells his name W-E-I-C-H-E-R-T, theweikertreport.com. And it's, in, it's a great website. Uh, you want to be informed. You want to read that, especially on the international scene. And it doesn't invade you with pop-ups or charges for anything. Brandon, one last final thing on the China front, on your column in, on China to conquer the moon in 2026 while America makes gender-neutral gender neutral spacesuits. Um, for those who say, well, let China have space, it's really this, the, the rest of your essay that's so important because to lose space is to lose the Earth, right? Right. And if you could right. – yeah. And do that again with the minerals and everything else. For those who are space skeptics – why is space important? Well, because we've finally reached a point 
with the global technology that we can and will start space mining, which is a minimum of a trillion dollar industry. It's considerably more when you consider that one of the asteroids near Earth uh, that NASA is sending a probe to is worth 700 quintillion dollars in mineable minerals, gold, uh, uh, cobalt, uh, you name the kind of mineable mineral that we need, lithium. You know, we hear today, right now there's a report floating out there that there is a massive lithium yeah. shortage yeah. because of all the new battery yeah. technology. Yeah. Well, there are abundant supplies near Earth of lithium. Now, we need to develop the infrastructure to get up to these places, but companies like uh, uh, SpaceX or these startups, there's one that was formed by Google, um, uh, and I'm forgetting now, it's a big asteroid mining company in, in California. There's one in Luxembourg. Luxembourg has become the unofficial capital of space mining companies. You've got Beijing companies. You've got Russian state companies all looking at creating the infrastructure to allow for easy access to these places where they can do mining and bring large numbers of these resources back to Earth that will lower the price of those resources on Earth and also make them more available so we can do more with them. And whoever gets there first has that mighty first-mover advantage. Think of the theory of Alfred Tayer Mahan when he wrote The Influence of Sea Power Upon History, which influenced Teddy Roosevelt and the U.S. naval policy right. even today when he right. said you have to go abroad with a large navy and dominate the, the sea lanes right. and the coal state, the coaling stations that ships use to refuel. And that way you control the arteries of the world and you control the world. You can, you can protect America from afar. The same thing applies now to space, right? You take that theory and you apply it to the to those important orbits around the Earth, and, and that is what you apply. The Chinese talk about this. They say the universe is an ocean and, and uh, the moon is the South China Sea. Whoever controls the strategic high ground of space controls the Earth below. They will dominate the rest of the Earth for all of time until a war starts that can knock them from that, and a war in space would be so devastating we may deprive ourselves of access to space because we'll create all that debris that then prevents us from sending ships back up into the, into the But we'll be the first in gender-neutral spacesuits. That's but right. that's But you well, know what? The bad then, joke is we may not behind. be. The bad joke is we may not be the first in that. But, but, but hold on. Even there we're falling behind. That's right. That's Russia, right. You know, have no problem sending women to space uh, for decades. Uh, it's we who've had this problem. And frankly, spending, what it, $500 million since 2009 on building one prototype that's gender-neutral, that is absurd. That is a waste of money. That is the, imagine what China or Russia would do with two or five hundred million dollars, not wasted away on gender neutral. I'm spaces. just trying to think of That's the advertisement um, that uh, that uh, the Space Force is using to recruit people, huh? It's pathetic. They're they're yeah. advertising. The real reason that they're having so much trouble is because they are not serious about space. They, yeah. they, everybody who's running Space Force are inimical, opposed to the idea of space dominance. Yeah. There's a handful of good people there, don't get me wrong. But in terms of, like, you see it in their social media outreach. They're a disaster. They're talking about diversity. They should be talking about Star Wars and yep. Star Trek. Yep. Nerds want to join. you yeah. got to appeal to the nerds. We thought science was impervious to this. It isn't. Uh, we see it in no, medicine all the time now. All the right. time in medicine and now space. It's, it's right. Nothing is impervious to this move. And, and I don't want to cast aspersions on Biden or these guys, but if they keep playing the way they are, they're going to get us all killed. Yeah, no, I get it. I get it. They've done enough damage already. All right, let's talk about um, let's talk about Russia. In Kazakhstan, Russia's imperium grows and at China's expense. So there's a few different stories here. There is the Russia-China story. We'll get to that. 
But there's also the Russia story in and of itself. Kazakhstan, uh, Russia, Ukraine. Give right. us that overview first, then we'll do the China angle here with Russia. Well, for the last several months, you know, since November, you've had Russia really kind of rattling their sabers at Ukraine. They want to take eastern Ukraine. They, it's a Russian-speaking enclave. It's got all the coal industry. Russia's trying to annex as much of Eurasia, that's Europe and Asia, as much of Eurasia's uh, fossil fuel production as they can so they can be sort of the mothership of uh, fossil fuel production in the world. Europe's already dependent on them for that. So we see that with the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. Uh, and uh, Russia wants to dominate that. That's why they're also involved in Syria. They want to build a pipeline linking Iranian energy sources through Turkey into Europe. That's a Russian-dominated pipeline, natural gas. So we see Russia playing pipeline politics all around Eurasia and the Middle East. So your, Ukraine's an essential element of that. Ukraine's also very much a, a strategic port. They've got the Sevastopol base, the naval base, that's Russia's big Black Sea port uh, that's in Crimea. That's why they took Crimea in 2014. They want to have access to the Black Sea. Uh, meanwhile, Central Asia, that's always been a, the Russians have always said that's their traditional backyard. It's certainly a soft underbelly of Russia. Uh, many of the Islamic uh, kind of extremists that they've dealt with in Russia have come up from that part of the former Soviet Union, Central Asia, Kazakhstan, and the like, all the stands. And so Russia has had a legitimate security concern there. Since the Cold War, obviously, they haven't had the kind of control over that region that they'd like. And what happened was Kazakhstan started the government there, was a sort of a kleptocracy, a very corrupt government. Um, it was a major fossil fuel producer, specifically natural gas. And they started raising the price of natural gas on their people in the last five to six months. Their people couldn't afford it because until then it was subsidized by the Kazakh government. And basically the people rebelled. And there's been a revolution over economics, legitimate economic concerns. It's caused instability. The government's collapsing. It's a disaster. And Russia senses an opportunity. So with their Central Security Treaty Organization, CSTO, which is Russia's version of NATO for Central Asia, they invaded Kazakhstan to support the Kazakh government and go after the, rebel the, the, re the rebellion. Uh, and the real objective, though, is to ensure that Central Asia generally, but uh, Kazakhstan specifically, with all of that LNG, uh, the liquefied natural gas production, is a, a satellite of Russia as it was in the Soviet Union. And this is part of a larger move by Russia to create a large... European or Eurasian economic zone uh, that it would be similar in makeup to the Soviet Union in terms of its borders, but it would have obviously a less direct control over those satellites where the Soviets had. Uh, it would be more like a European Union type, mm. uh, only for Eurasia with Russia at the center. And the reason that Russia wants to do this is because they're trying to send a message, yes, to the West, Europe and America, hey, back off. But they're also trying to send a message to China. You're not going to take us over. We're not going to be your vassal. You're going to work with us fairly or not at all. Let me pause you on that. Let, let me pause you on that because that exactly takes us exactly precisely where I wanted to go next. The China-Russia hand-wringing and what this says about all that. I'm Seth Liebson. He's Brandon Weikert, Brandon J. Weikert, publisher of The Weikert Report, theweikertreport.com. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Brandon J. Weikert is our guest. He is the publisher of the Weikert 
Report. He is a columnist for uh, the Asia Times, American Greatness, author of Winning Space. We're talking about Russia, China, Kazakhstan, Ukraine right now. Brandon, you were about to make a point about Russia sending a signal to China here with its yeah. recent actions. You want to go yeah. ahead with that? Yeah, so basically— I feel like uh, a psychologist, I, like the old Bob Newhart show. You want to go with that thought? <laughs> uh, so, so basically, the, the, the Russian-Chinese alliance is a real thing. It's something that every American policymaker should be scared of. We should be making bold actions, taking bold actions to stop it and contain it. Uh, we're not, because we have the this, this same usual suspects in charge of our policy who are incapable of thinking outside of the box. Uh, we had a real shot in the last four years to do it, and then that fell apart. Uh, and now we have, you know, the Sleepy Joe and his lot running the, the show, so expect more of the same. Oh, hold uh, that thought. Hold that thought, right. Sleepy Joe and the lot. I saw a news clip of Wendy Sherman saying, "If I think I have this exactly right, if Russia can... Uh, if Russia in, again invades the Ukraine, con, if Russia continues to invade the Ukraine, there will be severe consequences. Does right. anyone in Russia believe Wendy Sherman? Well, they don't care. Yeah, okay. Because what Russia's, <laughs> okay. what Russia's proving to the world right now, again, is there's no substitute for hard power. Right. And, you know, the, the only way to really impact Russia uh, about Ukraine is to stop them before they do it. And obviously, we're not going to stop them. We don't have the, the, the ability right now. We're stretched too thin, and they know it. Uh, and they just sent us the signal in Kazakhstan saying, hey, look, we can go in with 1,500 guys and completely skewer another country. Imagine what we can do with 100 to 300,000 guys in eastern Ukraine. And oh, by the way, they're sending a message not just to us about Ukraine, they're sending a message to China. Because yeah. right now, yes, the Sino-Russian alliance, as I was saying, is, is very serious. It's, it's, it's a real thing, especially in space. We're seeing them cooperate as never before in the high-technology domain because they have a shared interest in keeping U.S. power beyond Eurasia. However, within Eurasia, Russia does not want to become a vassal state to China's new empire. And on their own, the way that Russia is declining in population, the way that their economy is so small, they will be a vassal state to China unless they can build this new Eurasian Union with the former Soviet states, most of whom are in the Central Asia region, unless they can en enhance their capacity there and and cue those nations closer to Russia's power. Only then would China be able to deal more equitably with Russia because they wouldn't be able to cut Russia out with all these deals with the Central Asia. What was going on before Russia invaded Kazakhstan was that the Belt and Road Initiative, which is China's multi-billion, you know, trillion-dollar uh, uh, infrastructure deal to unite all of Eurasia under Chinese-dominated trading links, uh, what basically that said was they were going to cut Russia out from that and basically force Russia to kind of beg for scraps at China's new table in Central Asia. Well, Putin just said, uh-uh, no, no, I will gladly to partake in trade deals with you. I just signed a, uh, a new natural gas energy uh, trade deal with China. I will gladly do stuff like that. That makes China more dependent on me and Russia. But what I will not do is sit and watch as you, China, eat up our former territories, or the former Soviet territories in Central Asia, and let's face it, eventually Europe, if you left unchecked. So I'm going to do what I have to do, and this thing in Kazakhstan is the first step. I'm going to do what I have to do to force you to stay back and play nice with me and to play fairly. And oh, by the way, America, 
this is what I do to countries I don't like that I that I, I desire. Imagine what I'm going to do to Ukraine if you don't play ball with me. I can I can push China around. I'm going to be able to push you around. It's an incredible game that Putin's playing. As an observer, I have to marvel at it because he really is running a full house off a pair, but he's doing it masterfully. Uh, the, if I don't want to put words in your mouth, Brandon, so feel free to just roll over this statement or correct it or amend it or take it in the direction you would want. But I, th- I think I recall you saying that all the conversations about Russia and Ukraine and NATO, the NATO thing is really kind of the least relevant, possibly even irrelevant to this discussion. Am I right or wrong that you said that yeah, or what so, was your yeah, point? So basically, yeah. my point is, is that let, actually let me do this let me come back on yeah. that can i do that Perfect. i got i got to take the uh, obscene commercial break here right okay. <laughs> brandon j weikert is our guest i am um i am seth and we are happy to take your calls at 602-508-0960 i have some more questions for brandon not only just on the nato aspect of this but on um, on the uh, on the China Russia uh, threat as well, and something on Iran that just came out. You probably won't see this in your New York Times, but um, the um, deputy commander of the Iran's Revolutionary Guard Corps said, "When the time is right, Iran will strike the United States with great force. With great force. Aren't you glad we're pushing so hard to shake their hand?" I'm Seth. He's Brandon. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Brandon J. Weikert, generous with his time, as he always is. He joins us every Monday uh, in our second hour to review to review the world. Uh, Brandon, you were making a point about NATO that uh, was important yeah. here on the way. Go ahead, sir. So the, the point that I was making is that NATO is a 20th century bureaucracy. Think of analog versus digital. It is a 20th century analog bureaucracy in a 21st century digital or even post-digital world. So it, it is not structured properly to be able to adequately defend or roll back the kind of threat that we're talking about from Russia. Furthermore, nobody in NATO can agree on what exactly the threat is and what should be done. I would remind your audience that Germany is the economic heart of Europe, and France is probably the military might indigenous of Europe. Um, and those two powers are far too friendly with Russia for America's own good, and if or for Britain's good. And if suddenly NATO is expected to roll back or fight a Russian invasion of Ukraine, which is not a NATO member and never will be probably, um, if, if it is expected to do that, everybody's going to have egg on their face, and NATO's going to look really bad, because NATO's not going to come rushing to the defense. Any more than NATO came rushing to the defense of the people in the Balkans during the 90s. It took America finally stepping up and saying, okay, we're going to drop some bombs on these people that Europe then started, uh, you know, getting involved. Um, so you need to, we need to rethink NATO. And so something that I'm a big fan of are the European battle group concepts, the sub-regional battle groups, uh, the Vichrod, for instance. These are countries, Eastern European countries, some of them NATO members, some of them not, countries like Poland, Moldova, Estonia. Uh, I think even Ukraine now, uh, but these are these are countries that have banded together. Our best allies, one might say, too. By the way, I yes. Think, yeah. Well, particularly Poland. Yeah. Um, these countries have banded together economically since the '90s, but now they're building that economic union into a real military force that's somewhat independent of NATO. Because I think Eastern Europe realizes that 
as long as the Western Europeans, Southern Europeans, and even Northern Europeans, some of them have a vote, that NATO will not come to the defense of these former Soviet countries. And so they're trying to build up their capacity. And Poland is sort of the nucleus of this. And then you also have the Nordic battle group to the north, uh, which is, as the name suggests, the Nordic countries, uh, led by Sweden. Uh, and, and Sweden, that people don't realize, is virulently opposed to Russian naval uh, power, which has been, since 2014, encroaching on Swedish territorial waters. So Sweden's been trying to rehabilitate their naval force. Through the Baltic, et cetera. Yeah, right, right, right. right. Yes. So, so what America needs to be looking at is saying NATO's kind of a dud. It is too big to fail, but it's also too big to succeed. Yeah. And so what we need to be looking at is empowering those sub-regional actors, Poland, Sweden, through the battle groups. Something that I advocated for eight years ago on Congress when I was testifying, I said we need to give the Polish military tactical nuclear weapons. We need to give them nuclear weapons that they control the, the keys to, not America. Because so long as Russia knows America has the keys to those nukes, they think that the, the Poles or anybody we give those nukes to will not be a threat. But if we give a country like Poland nuclear weapons and we give them control of it, that is the ultimate deterrent. Because the Russians know the Poles are nuts. And so if we get them have nukes, the Russians will probably back off. Because they will think, oh, God, the Poles are going to go crazy. So we're not going to risk that. Because ultimately, Russia is not the same military force it was when the Soviet Union was around. It's smaller. It's in some cases modern, but not fully. It has a lot of tank power. But the tanks, a lot of them are still older uh, Soviet third and fourth gen or third generation tank technology. So there are things we can do to stymie Russia, to stop them from going to the right of boom. We've got to keep them to the left of boom. And if we keep them from getting to the right of boom, meaning initiating co conflict, whether it's over Ukraine or some other part of Eastern Europe, you prevented the world war that I'm fearing we're heading towards. But you can't rest on NATO because NATO's got too many voices. It's too centralized. And the center of gravity in NATO is still Germany and France, which is far removed from the new battlefield. So you, you can't rely on NATO. And they're going to slow walk any response the way they did to Georgia, the way they did to Ukraine in 2014, the way I think they will to Ukraine again. You can't rely on NATO. For about 70 years or so, give or take, um, foreign policy experts, speakers, candidates running for office, speaking of foreign policy, they'd all doff their hat. They'd all they'd tip their hat. They'd all tip their hat and say good words about NATO, one of the greatest alliances ever built, yes. the importance of Lincoln put it, Abraham Lincoln put it that as our case is new, we may need to think anew. And I'm just wondering if there's right. an American president in the offing in the future who's going to look at this the way you are and are suggesting and come up with a new alliance along the lines of what you spoke of that for right. 70 more years will keep the peace that this one can't. Right. Right. Well, we, we live in the age of decentralized networks. There was a yeah. wonderful book that I read a year ago. I cannot remember the name. But basically, it, before the, the COVID pandemic hit, it was very popular. It was about how uh, the human race would survive. I think it was seven catastrophes, how they would survive. And it was all modeled, the survival of the human race in those instances, asteroid impact, nuclear war, pandemic, was all modeled on the decentralized network approach. And that's how you have to look at uh, a, a mutual defense alliance. The, the NATO alliance was very effective in deterring the Soviet Union during the Cold War, because that was a 20th century conflict with 20th century means and 20th century thinking. But now we are in the 21st century. We're in what, what going into the third decade of the 21st century. The, you know, we might as well be talking about Stone Age tactics. Yeah. 
you know, when we're talking about NATO. We need something new. We need something new. Um, if you uh, if you find that uh, that book, I'd love to I'd love to read it. I, I, I it sounds like something Niall Ferguson would have written or me. No, it's a woman, and okay. she's a big liberal. But it was a very well yeah 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 book. yeah. Let me know next week uh, if I you know, I'll if post you find it on, it. on Twitter. Yeah I'll yeah. I, oh Twitter. good 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 good. Okay, fantastic. Um, Brandon, I, I suppose I suppose the question I have to ask you. I don't mean it as a toss up. I really don't, or a sure. layup. But it does seem like the world is getting more dangerous at the same time right. Americans are just not talking about any of it right now. And by right. Americans, I mean Washington, D.C. Right. Well, even let's face it, even our fellow citizens. Are only OK, about well, it yeah. OK, it's hard. Oh, fair I mean, enough. It's hard to energize. You know, OK, yes. OK. I mean, we're a big country, historically far removed, geographically far removed from the trouble spots of the world. And so we don't normally think in these terms unless. It's like a Pearl Harbor or right. 9-11. Right. That's a really unhealthy way to look at yep. it, especially today, because now the world is closer together. We see this with the supply chains. The world is closer together. What, it's the butterfly effect. What happens in, you know, Timbuktu could have really dangerous impacts on what's going on here in the United States. Uh, you know, and, and it's the same thing with conflict. And so we're not talking about it. Something we should be talking about, but we're not, is what's going on in Iran and, and what's going on with North Korea and how these kind of you know, peon countries suddenly might be able to really do a lot of damage to the United States. Uh, and, and they're going to if we don't signal to them and take real action that we're, A, aware of what they're doing, and, B, we're not going to let them do it anymore. No. And we don't have a president, and we don't have a, a political establishment, and our military has been gutted after all the war in the Middle East and all the other stuff we've been doing with all the wokeness. Our military's gutted. Despite the fact we're spending so much money on it, we're not allocating the money and resources where they need to be. And therefore, uh, uh, we, are, we are looking at a world war in which the United States is most definitely going to lose. We are definitely going to lose the opening conflict, at least. Um, and they're going to hit us at the homeland. Uh, people have been hiding behind the fence for far too long here, thinking that it doesn't really matter. Well, the shooting is going to start, and it's going to start probably closer to home. Iran, for instance, has the capability to move these drones off of our coast and start attacking us with these weapons. Uh, you now have North Korea, as well as China and Russia, may have hypersonic weapons technology, against which, as we've talked about before, America's uh, defensive uh, homeland defense system has absolutely no protection against. Um, and we don't yet have a working hypersonic weapons capability of our own or a defense against it. So bottom line... We are inviting attack. This is the Maginot Line all over again. We are hiding behind a wall that was meant to fight the previous war, and we do not have the systems or the capabilities or the thinkers in place, the strategists in place, to lead us in a victory in the new world war. And the world war has already begun. And frankly, my friend, I think, I think it's going to get bad, and then we're going to lose because we are so, we're like the French in the interwar years, and that is not a position to be in, especially because I think Biden would surrender. Sarajevo, Sudetenland, Kabul, Wuhan, places we don't typically think about right. that can mean very, very, very big things for our and lives. Watch Africa. You bet. Watch Africa. And watch. Over the next decade, Let's pick up on Africa's that next week. Let's pick up. up on Africa next week. That would be a great Let's thing. Do it. Yeah, it's yeah. been too neglected. Brandon J. Weikert, bless you, sir. Good to be back in Thank touch. You. More important Thank than you. good, helpful. Godspeed. Godspeed. We'll be right back.
Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. I got a bunch of calls. I got a guest coming up. If you are on hold, and yeah, if you're on hold, either stay or call me back in about 20 minutes or so. We'll go right to you. But can we squeeze Mike in in Phoenix real quick? Mike, go ahead, sir. Hey, Seth. It's been a long time. And I wanted to say that what you're experiencing in a lack of leadership from Biden is not a lack of leadership at all. What you're experiencing is what it's like to be led by a Politburo. We are being led by a committee, more than just apparatchiks. We're being run by a committee of political thinkers. And that's what's got everybody in the country, at least on the right, up in knots. And it's, it's, it's what's happening. And I, I sense that more than anything. It's not that Biden's not a leader. It's he's part of the apparatus that's trying to lead the country. I, I think that analysis is as good as any, Mike. Of course, the problem is when you have a diverse or a diffuse set of powers and overlapping jurisdictions without a commander in chief, without a leader to provide the messaging and the policy and the, and the answer at the end of the day, the yes or no at the end of the day, you get confusion. You're seeing this with COVID. I mean, you are seeing different administration officials contradicting one another on a daily basis now, you're probably having the same exact frustrations when it comes to foreign policy. I, I'm guessing, because Wendy Sherman says this, but the national security apparatus is saying, right? I, that's what I think. It's that's, yeah, I think that's in. as fair an analysis as anything. I really do. I mean, look what's happening in New York City. Uh, they're, they're right. I mean, you're right. trying to run by committee. It's not right. Work. No, you can't. At the end of the day... Hard times require a strong, strong leadership, and uh, I suppose in some respects that could have been a motto for the Trump administration, a strong man for hard times. But now we have harder times and a weaker man. Not a good recipe. I'm Seth. We'll be right back. Wilford Riley coming up. You don't want to miss him. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. 